In John chapter 20, we are, uh, we're in maybe, I mean, no, I'll go so far as to say we are celebrating in John 20 the most important event in human history. It's not a maybe, right? It's a fact. That in John chapter 20, we are reading and studying this morning the aftermath of the most important occurrence that has ever happened in human history or in the universe. The interesting thing is that it's not actually in John 20. And in fact, if you have a, if you have a John journal, if you've been working through the gospel of John with us and you have a copy of that journal, uh, if you don't have a copy, we'll give you one after the service out at the, at the connections desk. But if you have a copy uh, between John 19 and John 20, in the gap between those two, I'd love for you to take your pen this morning and write the word resurrection, right? Because the resurrection happens between John 19 and John 20. There is no gospel record of the resurrection. There is no uh, narrative of, you know, there was a bright light and then Jesus got up and he, you know, combed his hair and brushed his teeth and he was resurrected. We don't, we don't get the details on what the specifics of that moment looked like when Jesus went from being dead to being alive. What we see is the, the precursor to it. As we studied last week, we see Jesus taking the sin of the world upon himself in John 19, suffering and dying on the cross for the, for the sins of mankind, his blood is shed and he is buried dead. We talked last week about the sacrificial uh, offering that is made by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who came to Pilate and took his body and laid it in the tomb, right? So we see his death on behalf of mankind. And in John chapter 20, we're going to see the aftermath of the resurrection. We see the empty tomb in John 20, just like we do in the other gospels. But what you and I don't get is the, the, the actual moment. We don't see it. We just see what happens right after. It's interesting that God reserves that for himself. We have a God who is a God who loves mystery and he loves to call us to seek and whatever. And in fact, as we come to John 20, what we find is a situation that John describes as dark. In fact, that's the way he describes it here in, in the opening of John 20, verse 1. It says, now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She came while it was still dark. And if you've been in this study with us over these many months, uh, you know that John uses the idea of light and darkness on purpose, right? When he talks about darkness here, he is describing the time of day. He is telling us that it was early, early in the morning before the sun had risen. But he's also giving us a sense of symbolism here. He's telling us something more than just the time. He's talking to us about the vibe. He's talking to us about the feel. He's talking to us about the situation. It was a dark time for the characters that are dealing with this. We see... Mary Magdalene and John and Peter described in this text, and all of them are coming in the midst of great personal darkness. In fact, we, we know for a fact that this particular Sabbath, the one that precedes the events in John 20, was probably the least restful Sabbath that any of these people had ever had. They'd stood at the base of the cross. They'd witnessed from afar the actions of Christ as he sacrificed himself. Some of them had seen his body taken off the cross and put into the tomb. And their life is in utter chaos and turmoil. Their life is exploded. And so all of the Sabbath when they were supposed to be resting, they've in fact been grieving and sobbing and stressed out. The, 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 the situation that we see here in this moment, John chapter 20 at the beginning, is a place where we see people who are grieving and panicked. They're confused. They're suffering loss. We see an urgency. There's more running here in John 20 than we've seen in the whole rest of the gospel. People running from place to place. There's a tension. There's a darkness, both literal and emotional, spiritual darkness that's happening in the life of these people. I don't know what sort of scenario you bring in with you this morning, but each and every one of us face different levels 
of darkness, different levels of anxiety and sorrow and grief and suffering and pain, confusion and loss. I don't know where your life is this morning, but all of us have faced it, and we don't even necessarily have to quantify the level of loss or the level of grief. The reality is that these people are suffering, and you may be in a place, place this morning where you're also feeling at a loss, where you're feeling confused, where you're grieving, where you're suffering, where you're not sure what's going to happen next. And so you can relate to the pain that Mary feels when she comes. I've, I've told them, I told this story to some of you before, but the scariest thing that ever happened to me in my life uh, happened to me when I was in fourth grade. In fourth grade, I, uh, I went to bed a regular night of the week, just like any other night. I went to bed like normal and, um, you know, said goodnight to my parents and the whole deal. And then some point later, and I don't even know how much time had expired, but some point later, I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm no longer in my bed. I'm tied up, and I'm on a cold, hard surface, and it's pitch black. I can't see my hand in front of my face. Um, I, I was no longer on the carpet. I mean, I had carpet in my room. Uh, like I said, I was tied up, and so I'm terrified. I don't know where I am. I don't know how I got there. I don't know how long I've been there, but in my little fourth grade mind, I just assumed that I'd been kidnapped. I didn't, I didn't know how else to process it, and so I rotate up onto my hands and knees as best I can and I try to crawl out of this darkness and um, I don't know where my parents are and I, I don't crawl very far before I bang my head into a wall and I turn and I crawl the other direction and I bang my head again. I, I basically go in four directions and I can't escape. I realize in the darkness, I do the math and kind of figure out I'm basically in a box. I'm not sure how I got there and I'm not sure who put me there and I'm not sure what's gonna happen to me next but I know that I'm terrified, mortified. And so I start to scream. I'm screaming as loud as I can. I'm screaming for anybody and everything. Some of it's kind of wordless. I'm just terrified and I'm screaming for help. And then uh, there's a blinding light. I'm not kidding. There's a blinding light and as my eyes adjust, I look up and I see my mother's face. And, and as my, my eyes sort of adjust to the situation, I figure out where I am. I realize that I've been lying on the bathroom floor in our house. And that at some point in the middle of the night, I'd gotten up to go to the bathroom. And I had taken my pajama bottoms down. And then uh, I'd gone to the bathroom. And then I just laid down on the tile floor and went to sleep in the dark. Uh, so when I woke up, I thought I had been tied up. But it was just my underwear wrapped around my ankles. <laughs> And then I rotate over onto my hands and knees and I start to crawl and I bang my head into the toilet and I go the other way and I bang my head into the bathtub and then I go the other way, I bang my head into the kitchen or the, the bathroom sink deal and I start to scream. Why? Because my interpretation, right, my perception of my situation created a certain reaction. Can I tell you that in all of our lives, whether today feels rosy and bright to you or whether you're in the midst of deep darkness, in all of our lives, what's most important, what's guiding who we are and what we do is our situation, our perception of that situation, and then our reaction because of that perception. Our situation, our perception, and our reaction. As soon as my mom showed up and turned on the light, I wasn't terrified anymore. I was humiliated, right? At that point, I felt like such an idiot, mostly because I, my pants were down in front of my mom, but also... Because of all the scary things that have been running through my head. Why? Because I didn't fully understand my situation. I had perceived it wrongly, and because of that wrong perception, my reaction didn't make sense, right? When my mom saw me sitting on the, or laying on the floor screaming, she was like, what are you doing? But it was because I had misinterpreted what was going on. When Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, she is filled with grief. It is darkness that she's feeling. She has a certain perception of her situation. And what's interesting about her perception of the situation is that you and I, some 2,000 years later, we know her perception is wrong. 
We live in a time period in which we know the whole of the story. We know that Jesus came and took the sin of mankind. That in this moment he is not dead, but that he's alive. That he's risen from the dead. And not only has he risen from the dead, but by his grace he extends to each and every man, woman, and child resurrection life as well. We know that it's a great thing that's happening. Our perception of this situation is drastically different than hers because we know the end of the story. But she didn't know that. She was in the middle of the situation. She didn't know the way it was going to end. And all she was feeling at this point is terror and grief and sadness and confusion. I want you to be with her in the midst of that because many seasons in our own lives feel like this where we don't know what comes next and we don't know what to do and we don't know where to go. It says in John chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. It's interesting how often in our lives that sort of unnamed they takes on sort of an ominous power. There are details in our lives that we don't know and we fill it in with sort of an unknown villain, right? Mary says, they've taken him. We don't know exactly who she means. Does she mean grave robbers? Because grave robbery at this point in history was a big deal. Does she mean the Jewish leaders? No, no idea why they would have wanted to come in contact with the dead body of Jesus. But we don't know exactly who she means. But we do know that in her heart, it doesn't matter what she meant. What she feels is, someone has done me dirty here. Somebody has come and taken my master and they've hidden his body. We don't know where it is. She runs to tell Peter and it says here, the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, there is some speculation in theological circles about exactly who that is. I personally believe that it's John. So for the sake of our study this morning, I think John's talking about himself. If you're one of those who thinks that's talking about Lazarus or somebody else, you're certainly welcome to that opinion because it's not super clear. But I believe that John here is referring to himself as as the disciple that Jesus loved. So Mary runs to where Peter and John are and she says, you've got to come with me. I went, the stone has been rolled away and they've taken his body. And I don't know where he is. Can you feel her confusion and her fear and her sorrow and her grief just escalating because of the way she's perceiving her situation? It says then, In verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. One of the reasons why I believe that John is talking about himself here is that twice in this passage he tells us he's faster than Peter, right? (laughs) Like in the midst of the greatest story ever told, John just needs to be like, hey, for the, you know, just so you know, we were in a race, and Peter wasn't even close, right? I'm much faster than him. So it says, Peter went, uh, with, with, Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. We're going to see some distinct, different reactions here. It says that Peter and John run to the tomb, and, and when they get there, John, even though he got there first, doesn't go into the tomb. He says he, he kind of takes a peek in, but he doesn't go all the way in. Peter, in typical Peter style, barges in, and when he gets there, what he finds is that the grave clothes are not disheveled, they're not missing, they're in fact there, and and they're organized. They've been folded or rolled up and left in place. 
Now, John, the author here, is, is juxtaposing a thing for us because if you remember when we studied John 11, not too many months ago, we studied John 11 and Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. Remember that? When he called Lazarus out of the tomb, Lazarus was still completely bound. In fact, just for the sake of your recollection, I'll read it to you. This is John 11, uh, 43 and 44. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John, the author here, is telling us that the resurrection of Jesus is similar but not exactly like the resurrection of Lazarus. When Lazarus came out, he still needed assistance. When Lazarus came out, he was still bound and he needed someone else to go and unbind him. The resurrection of Lazarus happened because of someone else's power exercised on his behalf. But the resurrection of Jesus is distinctly different. He didn't need anybody to unbind him. He didn't need anybody to unwrap him. He did that himself. And my mom would be proud. Not only did he take the wrappings off himself, but he folded them up nicely and made his bed before he left, right? Kudos to Mary for good training, right? Peter goes in and he sees the grave clothes lying, organized. But that, what that does is it, is it triggers something in your mind as well. It, it wouldn't make sense for grave robbers to unwrap the body and take him naked out of the tomb, right? It wouldn't make sense for the Jewish leaders or those who wanted to thwart the message of Jesus to come and take the time to unwrap his body. And if they were going to unwrap his body for some reason, why wouldn't they just leave him in a pile in their haste to get away? No, the fact that it's organized, that it's folded or rolled and left in place sends a signal. And in fact, we see the first response here, situation, perception, and reaction. We see the first in the part of, of John. It says in verse 7, the face cloth, which had, not, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then, verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, there it is the second time. Remember, I'm faster, right? I'm faster than Peter. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, it said. He saw and believed. I found this really troubling in my preparation. And in fact, at first when I was reading it, it doesn't tell us exactly what he believed. And it doesn't really tell us what there is to believe. He goes in and he sees that the grave clothes are folded up nicely. And it says he saw and believed. And I looked at that at first and I thought, well, maybe that just means he believed Mary Magdalene's story that the body had been taken. But the more I've studied it and the more I look at it, the more I think about the author in, in holes. We look at the whole, the whole story. I don't think that's what he's saying there. I don't think he's saying I went in and I saw the grave clothes and I believed that he'd been kidnapped or that his body had been taken. I think what John is saying is I went in and I believed everything that he told me because the verse that follows, he says up until that point, I won't paraphrase it, I'll read it to you. It says in verse nine, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John, I think, is saying to us, I went in and I saw the clothes folded there and I recognized that couldn't have been grave robbers. It couldn't have been the Jewish leaders. It had to have been Jesus himself fulfilling what he said he would do. And that was the moment of belief for me. Here's what I think is going on. I think in the same way that John has already told us that he was the first one to get there, I think he's also telling us, I was also the first one to understand what's going on. And I don't think that's coming from a place of arrogance. I don't think that's him saying, you know what, nobody else got it, but I did. I think it's kind of like your first love. Each and every one of us remember that very first moment when we got the butterflies in our stomach and the twinkle in our eye, when we saw that significant other person, when you fell in love for the first time, you'll never forget it, right? I think as John is writing this story out, and he says, I got there first, but I didn't go in. And then Peter went in, and the clothes were all folded up, 
And then I went in and I saw the clothes and something clicked. That was my moment. That was the moment that I believed. Now, for some of you, you might look and go, well, that, that was sure easy. Isn't that nice? But isn't that true in our lives as well? Aren't there, have you ever experienced like other people who can believe really easy? And you kind of look, I mean, like you maybe know people who they haven't seen a ton of miracles in their life. They haven't done a ton of in-depth Bible studies and whatever, but they just believe that Jesus lives. They just believe that he's the king of the universe. And you might look at them and go, but have you done any research? I mean, have you studied apologetics? Do you know all the answers to every question? They're like, I don't need all that stuff. Why? Because God sometimes creates belief. By the way, faith only happens when God creates it, right? Faith is a byproduct of God's work in us. And sometimes, for some people, all they have to see is a few things, and belief is created supernaturally. We see that in John here. He looks in, he sees some grave clothes that are folded up, and he believes. It's a beautiful moment. A beautiful moment of belief, but it's distinctly different than what happens in the life of Peter. It does not tell us that Peter believed in this moment. In fact, it tells us just the opposite. It says that John believes, but that at this point, the rest of the disciples didn't comprehend everything that was happening. And then if you look at verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. A couple of different reactions. They see the same situation. They have a a different perception, and as a result, a different reaction. Peter goes in and he looks at it, and it doesn't immediately create belief in him. He goes, I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. There may be some of you in the room this morning who fall into that camp. We're in the midst of your grief and in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of trying to sort out what it is that's going on in the confusion and the darkness and the pain. There may be some of you who in the midst of it are like, you know what, I can just trust Jesus because I just can and there may be some of you who in the midst of the darkness and the pain and the suffering go, you know what, I'm going to need to process this a little bit more. And you head home. I think in Peter's case, he, he's not ready to make a quick decision. He needs to sort of wrestle with this a little bit more. And then the third reaction we see in the text is not the quick belief, and it's also not the longer processing. The third reaction we see is the reaction from Mary. It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Mary doesn't make a quick decision. She also doesn't sort of postpone her conclusion until later. What Mary does is she just lingers in her sorrow. She just stands there and cries. She doesn't leave. It doesn't say that she believes. It just says that she feels gross and she kind of sits in it. I would guess that there may be some of you in the room who in the midst of your sorrow and in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your despair have just kind of lingered And maybe there are times where you've looked at people who believe really quick and seem like they have tons of faith, right? Or maybe you've looked at people who've seemed to sort of put off decisions about what to do until later, and you've looked at them with envy. Or maybe worse yet, you've looked at them and said, well, they're doing it right and I'm doing it wrong. My grief is somehow wrong because it's lasting longer. My hurt, my sorrow, my pain is inappropriate because I couldn't just believe immediately like John did. What I love in this case is that the the lingering actually makes a difference. She doesn't make a quick decision. She doesn't rush away from the scene. She waits. I was reminded this week of what David says in Psalm 27, in the midst of his suffering and in the midst of his fear. He says in 27.13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So I think reprieve will come, David says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I found myself asking the question this week, what happens if in the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the suffering and the confusion and the grief and the urgency and the panic, what happens if we wait a little bit longer? 
I don't think that's a wrong decision. In fact, I think we'll see in the texture that that was the right decision. That for her, it was exactly the right thing to just stand there and cry. Because that was true. It was honest. I think you and I, we have to give ourselves permission to feel what we feel. And in the midst of the darkness and in the grief and the pain, we don't want to look left and right at the responses of other people. Now, you and I, even 2,000 years later, we can look and go, why was she feeling sad? And it's interesting because the angels are going to say something very similar in just a second. The angels are going to say something similar, and you want to know why? Because their understanding of the situation, their perception of the situation creates a different reaction. But her perception of the situation is my master is not only dead, now I can't even get close to his body. I can't even get close to his tomb where his body is laid. And she's grieving. I like the fact that she lingers in the midst of that. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, one of the things I love about this verse in 2 Corinthians is the fact that it says all affliction. It doesn't just say that God comforts us in the midst of catastrophic, heinous affliction. It says he comforts us in all affliction. You know, I think sometimes we look at our own pain and we look at our own suffering. And maybe you even have the ability to go, you know what, my, my pain pales in comparison to people who are starving. Or my pain pales in comparison to people whose marriages are falling apart or whatever. And maybe you've dismissed the grief you're feeling. I don't think we have to sort of, uh, I don't think we have to quantify whose affliction is the worst and go, Jesus only shows up to comfort those who have affliction on a, on a heinous scale. I think what 2 Corinthians says is whatever your affliction, God will comfort you in it because he is a God of all comfort. And he comforts us so that then we can turn and comfort those who are afflicted as well. Why? Because everyone deals with affliction. To varying degrees, we all have moments of darkness and grief and pain and confusion and sorrow. I love the fact that God sees us in the midst of that, that she lingers. Let's keep reading here and see, see the result of that lingering. John makes... A quick decision for faith. Peter goes home. But Mary, verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, this is interesting because Peter was just in there a minute ago, and so was John. And there weren't any angels in there. Or maybe there were, and they just didn't see. Maybe you can only see angels through your tears. I don't know. But Mary looks, and it appears the angels are back. I, I have a theory here, and I hesitate to share it with you because I shared it with the, uh, the first service, and they, they were not friendly towards me. But I think um, we'll see if you're a little more open-minded than the first service. I, I think the angels weren't there when Peter and John poked their heads in, and they're back now. I think they went to get some clothes for Jesus because Jesus took the grave clothes off, and then he was resurrected, you know, but naked, and that would have been shocking to everybody. So the, I think the angels left for just a few minutes, and they went and stole the gardener's close. Right? They stole the gardener's jumpsuit. They come back. Now, what we don't hear in the story is that there's now a naked gardener running around. Don't think about that, right? The angels leave for a minute. They go and get Jesus a gardener's costume. They come back. By the way, if you're writing this in your John journal, would you do me a favor? Just cross it out, right? Just cross that out. Don't. I don't want you to look back on it in a year and be like, yeah, we should have seen signs our pastor was bonkers. Uh, I don't know where the angels were. I don't know where they were when John and Peter stepped in. But what we do know is that when Mary steps in, they're there. And based on their read of the situation, their perception, their reaction is this. They look at her and they say this, woman, why are you weeping? 
And this isn't a scolding. It's not a rebuke. They're genuinely confused. Why would you be crying? The king of the universe, the one who gave us life and breath, he came here in the incarnation, which we never understood. We don't know why he'd want to take on humanity. But what we've come to understand is he did that to rescue you from sin and death. Now the tomb is empty. Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive. This is a day for a party, not a day for tears. Why are you crying? You see, they have an accurate understanding of the situation. They have an accurate perception of what's going on. And therefore, her reaction is confusing. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever looked at other people and thought, well, I don't really get your reaction. I don't really understand why you're handling this the way you're handling it. Many times that comes because maybe we know something they don't, or maybe we think we know something they don't. I think, and not, I'm not one to give advice to angels, but I think maybe we go a little bit slower with Mary. Why is she weeping? Because her perception of the situation, even though it's wrong, feels very real to her. Her perception leads to the reaction. They look at her and say, why are you weeping? And she answers them as, as honestly as she can. They said to her, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. I think in the midst of her grief and in the midst of her tears, the last time, by the way, that she'd seen Jesus, his beard was ripped out. His eyes were swollen shut. He had a crown of thorns jammed down over his brow. He barely looked like a human being. He looked more like a piece of meat. So I don't think she expects to see the resurrected Jesus looking like he does. But I also just don't think that in her grief and in her sorrow and in her confusion, in the darkness, I don't think she expected Jesus to be there. She doesn't recognize him. He's standing behind her, and I love it. She thinks he's the gardener. I like that she thinks he's the gardener because, for the record, he's the creator of all things. If anybody's a gardener, it's Jesus. But she mistakenly identifies him as a gardener, which goes along with John's theme of people misunderstanding who Jesus was. Jesus says to her, uh, having, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same thing. This isn't a day for tears. And then he says one more thing to her. He says, whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, interestingly, I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but all the way back in John 1, at the calling of the first disciples, do you remember what he asked them? When he called the very first disciples, he looked at them and he said, what are you seeking? And we talked at the time about the fact that Jesus cares more about what you're hungry for. He cares more about what you're after than he does what you know. Jesus didn't look at those early disciples and say, what do you know? Or where have you been? Where'd you go to school? How much money do you have? What do people think about you? He looked at them and he said, what do you want? What are you hungry for? For the record, what he says to Mary in the tomb is precisely the same in the original language. They've translated it here in the ESV, whom are you seeking, instead of what are you seeking, but the word there that's translated whom and what is the very same word. Jesus looks at her and he says, what is it you're after? Why are you crying? And, and I just want you to know this, that for each and every one of us, no matter what kind of darkness you might be in, no matter what kind of difficulty you're going through, no matter what kind of grief and loss and suffering, that is still the right question. Because in the midst of our sorrow, many times the things that we want are the wrong things. Sometimes we just don't want to feel anything anymore. Sometimes we want the pain to go away. Sometimes we want things to go back the way they were. There are all kinds of answers to that question. But the right answer when he says, what are you after? The right answer for her and the right answer for me in my darkness and the right answer for each and every one of us is in those moments of grief and confusion and darkness and loss, we have to recalibrate our lives no matter what our perception of the situation to be hungry for more Jesus. She looks at him. 
and she says, they've taken my master's body, and wherever you took it, I'll go and get it. Just tell me where it is, and I'll go and get it, right? He looks at her and says, what are you seeking? And I think we have to ask ourselves the same questions. In our sorrow, in our grief, what is it you're hungry for? What are you after? Because Jesus is the right answer to that question. She looks at him and says, tell me where his body is. I'll go and get it. And then the coolest thing happens, you guys. Check this out. She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, one word, her name. He doesn't say, hey, I just want you to know, I died on the cross, I rose from the dead, it's this whole thing, you'll understand it later, right? There's no more explanation than this. He says one word, he says, Mary, her name. Can I tell you, there is nothing more beautiful than your name in Jesus' mouth. I was stirred this week even just thinking about human relationships. But it's funny, in marriage um, with my wife, I don't, we don't use each other's first names very often, right? You know, it's just like not, we use, there's little pet names we use sometimes. But more often when I'm conversing with my wife, it's me going, uh, hey, I'm really sorry I didn't take this stuff out of the washer and put it in the dryer. Or, hey, I'm sorry I didn't put my shoes away. It's a lot of apologizing, right? But there's not a lot of, um, <laughs> there's, not a lot of there's not a lot of me calling her Shannon. Her name is Shannon, but I don't really call her Shannon that often unless I'm talking to you about her, right? To her, I don't use it. And I don't even remember what we're doing this week, but I was in preparation for this, finalizing it. And there was a moment this week where we were doing something and she, my wife, said my name, Darren. And I turned and I looked at her and it was like, I got chill bumps thinking about it just now. I looked at her and I said, my name never sounds better than when it's coming out of your mouth. There's something really beautiful about the way she says a stupid name like Darren. It's moving to me, right? I love hearing my wife say my name, and I don't hear it very often, but when she uses my name, it gives me chills. Imagine the creator of the universe in the midst of the darkness and the sorrow and the grief and the pain, and he looks at her, and he doesn't give her a lengthy explanation. He just says, Mary. I don't know if he uses a different tone. I do a thing like with my daughter, Lily, where when I talk to Lily, sometimes I'll call my daughter Lily, Lily, and I use kind of a funny voice. So when I drop her off for school, I'll be like, have a good day, Lily, you know? And she's like, dad, whatever, you know, Lily, bye, Lily. I don't know if at this point, I want to believe that at this point that Jesus and Mary had like a kind of a little bit of an inside joke, right? That maybe when we watch the video of this someday, this is Jesus and he goes, Mary, you know? And maybe she had her own silly way of saying him. You know, maybe she goes, Rabboni, you know? And it's this beautiful moment. I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus knows my name. That Jesus sees me in my sorrow and my grief. And in my sorrow and my grief and my confusion, when I have misperceived the situation and so my reaction is off, what I need more than anything else is to hear my name on his lips. It says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Maybe you remember in John chapter 10, verse 2, where Jesus, talking about being the good shepherd, says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary doesn't need him to give a lengthy explanation. The moment that he says her name, the moment she hears her name on his lips, her perception of the situation is radically changed forever. 
Because he's not a dead body somewhere hidden away. He's her living master, her living teacher. The word that comes out of her mouth is Rabboni. And I imagine at that point she grabs him around the legs, right? She, and, and the reason I imagine that is because he then immediately says, don't cling to me. I think he says, don't cling to me because her tendency was to go, I'm never letting you out of my sight again, right? I'm never going to be hunting for you again. I want to hold on to you. And Jesus looks at her because he knows her tendency and ours. Our tendency is to want to just hold on to Jesus and hunker down. Find a safe place, gather together and just hold on to Jesus. Hold on to what we know about him, right? And he looks at her and he says, don't cling to me. And he goes one step further. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He says, don't hold on to me. It's not going to be about this physical manifestation. I'm ascending to the Father. The Spirit of God's going to be in you. Here it is. It's not about hunkering down with me. It's about going to tell. He looks at Mary Magdalene, right? In a, in a time period in which it, a one singular woman's voice would not have held up in court. The testimony of a woman's voice would not have held up in court. It took two men for something to be ratified in court at the time. Jesus doesn't come to two men. The first person he comes to is a woman. And he says to her, Mary, don't cling to me. Go and tell. Go and tell who? My brothers. This is the first time he ever refers to us as his brothers. He's called them disciples. He's called them followers. He's called them lots of other things. He's never called them, he's called them friends even, but he never calls them brothers until here. He says, go and tell my brothers that I'm going to my father and their father, my God and their God. You see, the call isn't just to realize that Jesus knows your name and to cling to him. The call is to understand that Jesus knows your name and that he's never gonna leave you, that he's with you always, and to use that as a catalyst for witness for testimony, to leave that safe place and go and communicate that truth to other people in their darkness. Mary Magdalene, for the record, has been called by many the apostle to the apostles because she is the one that Jesus chooses to take the message of resurrection to the disciples. That is not meaningless. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. He chooses her to be the very first ambassador of this message. And she goes and she tells them, I have seen the Lord. You know, the reality is that for many of us, when we think about our situations and our perception of our situations, our reaction because of that perception, for many of us, our reaction is we, we functionally live like Jesus is dead. Many of us functionally live like Jesus is dead. Now, if I asked you to raise, how many of you think Jesus is dead? You wouldn't raise your hand. It's not really a safe place to answer that. Some of you may believe that. I'm glad you're here. Most of us in this room, I would guess, believe that Jesus is alive. But we haven't allowed the fact that he lives to change our perception of our situation. You see, the fact that Jesus is alive doesn't just change his circumstance. It doesn't just change his situation. The fact that Jesus lives changes your situation as well. The fact that Jesus is alive today, that he has your name in his mouth, that he sees you and knows you, that he loves you, that he's promised to be with you forever, that he has all the power and that he has called us to be his ambassadors, that is a recalibration of our perception of every situation. Every situation for you and I has to be read and understand, understood, perceived in light of the fact that Jesus lives. Because he lives, our reactions look differently. Mary's life changes, Peter's life changes, John and all the rest changes because they accurately see the situation they're in. When my mom flips on the bathroom light, I don't have to be afraid anymore. 
I don't have to be worried about being kidnapped or tied up or what's going to happen next. As soon as she flips on the light and I see her face, all of the rest of that goes away. Can I tell you that when Jesus steps in to your situation, when you hear your name in his mouth, it's like he's flipping on the light and you can calibrate every other circumstance in light of the truth that he is alive. No matter what kind of darkness you're facing, what kind of sorrow, confusion, it's fine to linger in that while you listen for his voice. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a hunger to hear our names on your lips. I pray that, God, if there are some in this room who've been unable to believe easy, and if there are some in this room who've maybe even sort of avoided the need to make a decision and some who are lingering in their doubt and their pain and their confusion and their worry and their panic, God, would you meet them in that? Would you take away any guilt and shame they might feel in that? It's totally misplaced and allow them to just be true in the confusion they feel. And yet, would you, would you redeem them? Would you whisper in their ear and remind them that you see them and that you know them and that you have a purpose? We love you and we need you. We can't live without you. Help us not forget that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.